Okay. Um, this morning we are going to consider uh, only a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount. The text today is short because this is an exceedingly difficult command that Jesus will ask of us, and I want us to take it uh, seriously and consider it closely. Um, Every week, Jesus has challenged us in some uncomfortable ways, and uh, that's going to continue today. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Turn the other cheek, give him your cloak, go the extra mile, give to the beggar, lend to the borrower. These are commands that Jesus gives to his disciples, and they are difficult commands, especially for people who pride themselves in personal liberty. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this bothers us. And probably Jesus wants us to be bothered a little bit by it. Sounds like Jesus is commanding us to be Christian doormats. But I want to remind you of the most important rule of interpreting the Bible, which is this. Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, if you're struggling to understand something that the Bible says, you should look at the context and then you should also look at what the Bible says about that that topic in other places. And if you remember earlier in the same chapter... Jesus said that if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. And no one takes that literally, right? And so I think we should be careful as we continue reading the Sermon on the Mount, use some discernment about what we take literally and what we don't. At the same time, Jesus said that about cutting off our hand to make sure we understand how seriously God views our sin. He's making a point. And He's making a point here as well. And as disciples of Jesus, we should take these commands seriously, but we do need to break them down just a little bit. And so let's go back to verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament 
law that is a civil case law. It was meant to inform the judges of Israel how they should handle situations of violence between two or more people. And God's answer in those situations was simple. He tells the judges, use a principle of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which sounds barbaric in our modern brains, but there's actually great wisdom in this practice. The goal of the law was to restrain people from taking revenge or enacting some sort of vigilante justice. It also helped feuds between people or families to keep them from escalating, which of course they're prone to do. And so it, it was a case law, but it was not a, a single case law. In fact, there are many examples in the Old Testament of this type of law. For instance, if someone was caught stealing an animal, a sheep or a goat, that person would be forced to return the animal and also to give the victim a second animal from his own flock. In other words, his punishment then was to suffer the same type of loss that he was trying to inflict on another person. That's found in Exodus 22 verses 4 through 6. Another example, if one man were to break another man's arm, the judge would then have the first man's arm also broken in court. That's found in Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. And then if someone lied in court, if they committed perjury, they would give that person the same punishment that was owed to the person that they were accusing, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16 through 21. Now again, modern societies would look at these laws and they would say this is a case of cruel and unusual punishment. But honestly, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say I think there's actually great wisdom in this type of law. And certainly we should yearn for an end to all violence. And that day is coming. But in the meantime... God has given the state authority to judge the guilty. And it is also my conviction that Jesus takes no issue here with these laws. That's not his purpose and that's not what he actually says. Instead, what Jesus seeks to address is that the religious leaders sought to apply this law in private relationships, not only in cases of public or uh, civil concern. Okay, so Jesus is concerned with our personal relationships, as he has been through the entire sermon. Uh, He's concerned with the grudges that we hold between ourselves, the resentment that comes between two people. And so how we conduct ourselves when we suffer a personal offense, that's what Jesus is addressing. Most of all, what's going on inside of your heart? Notice in verse 39, he doesn't say 
that eye for an eye is a bad law or that he's retracting it. Instead, he says, do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, so he's urging his disciples not to retaliate or not to seek to take the law into their own hands. And the Apostle Paul actually says something very similar to this in Romans chapter 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For doing so... Or by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The reason that we know that the Apostle Paul is intending for us to receive this in a personal sense is because in the very next chapter, in Romans 13, and in the very next verse, which is verse 1, Paul says this, He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So the teaching is fairly clear, and there are some debates about how we might interpret this and under what circumstances might Christians um, exercise civil disobedience. And we can talk about those things if you want. You can call me. But God is, is clearly using human authorities to apply civil law, right? And Paul is saying, as well as Jesus, that Christian disciples have a different responsibility when it comes to how we view these things in personal interactions. We have a different law to apply to our lives. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, give the man your cloak. He says, go the extra mile. Give to the beggar. Lend to the borrower. And yet, as is rightly pointed out by a lot of commentaries, we should certainly use discernment in those things. This can get very complicated very quickly if we try to tease out every possible application of what Jesus is saying. Right? Is He saying that we should subject ourselves to physical abuse? If I'm walking down the street and I happen upon a man who is attacking a woman, is it my responsibility to only call the authorities and not intervene? Would it be wrong of me to step in and defend this woman? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is He saying that I should literally give money to every single beggar that I meet? This gets complicated, right? I get calls occasionally from a man who has my number. This man we helped many years ago at our mother church financially. And since that time, which was probably 10, 15 years ago, um, we've come to realize that this particular man is actually a very successful con artist. 
And he's still got my number and he calls me from time to time. Should I continue to take those calls and lend assistance to someone that I know is lying to me? Right, so it gets complicated that there there are situations where we should use discernment and exercise wisdom. But some of these problems are resolved when we actually look more closely at what Jesus is actually saying. For instance, turn the other cheek has a context. Okay, so if you consider the type of blow that Jesus is actually referring to, and this is kind of interesting, right? If you read it, it says, if a man strikes you on the right cheek, why does he use the word right? Why does it matter which cheek you're being slapped on, right? Well, in ancient times, vast majority of people were right-handed, and if they weren't right-handed, they definitely used their right hand for most things because they used their left hand for other things. And so at that time, if a right-handed man were to strike someone on the right cheek, it was actually a backhanded blow. You see that? It's the only way that would would function. So he's actually using the back of his hand. In the first century, as it is today, a backhanded blow was considered an insult. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of it more like Will Smith smacking Chris Rock. Okay? This isn't just any turn the other cheek. This is an insulting blow. This is not just a physical assault of any kind. This was Jesus saying, I believe, that when someone attacks your honor, when they publicly humiliate you, do not seek to defend your honor by returning violence. That's what I think Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, I want you to suffer the insults. Verse 40 has a similar meaning. If someone takes you to court, what are they doing? They are publicly accusing you of wrongdoing. And notice that Jesus does not qualify this. It doesn't seem to matter in this situation whether I'm being falsely accused or whether I've actually done the thing that they're accusing me of. Jesus says, I want you to resist the temptation to fight for your honor. Endure the insult. Now, verse 41, I think, is particularly difficult for us, as I mentioned earlier. And there was a common scenario for this verse. Um, Roman law actually allowed soldiers to force local citizens into carrying their equipment for up to a thousand paces. In other words, a foreign army could force you to carry the means of your own oppression and you couldn't do anything about it. And then Jesus says quite clearly that we should turn that coercion on its head by voluntarily going the extra mile. Now, that's a tough one. That flies in the face of everything Americans hold dear, right? But he's saying, I want you to do this voluntarily. And finally, we come 
to verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And at face value, this seems simple, but I want us to consider a few things. At that time, it was widely assumed that poor people were under a curse from God. Now, of course, that's bad theology. The Bible never taught that because God had been very clear in the Old Testament that He wanted His people to care for the poor. And we know now that poverty can actually be a very complicated thing. Sometimes people make bad decisions that contribute to poverty, but very often they have suffered from other people's bad decisions. It's not always so simple. And yet, this was the common assumption in the first century. It was that poor people were poor for a reason. It was their fault. They had done something, or their parents had done something, and they were being cursed by God with their poverty. They didn't deserve money. That's why they didn't have money. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? This happens several chapters later in Matthew chapter 19. There's a man who uh, comes to Jesus asking what good thing he must do to gain eternal life. Jesus told the man that the one thing he lacked was that he needed to sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor. And he couldn't do it. And I think most of us read that story and we assume that this is um, this is just a him problem, okay? He just, he just loves money too much and he can't give it up and so he walks away sad. But I want you to think carefully about this with me. How do most rich people get rich? That's a bit of a complicated question too, but most people who are wealthy would argue that they got their wealth through hard work. And obviously that's not the case with everyone. Some people inherit their money. But somewhere in their family history, someone would have worked hard typically to gain wealth. And there's usually a lot of pride associated with that kind of effort, right? This is especially true in honor and shame cultures like ancient Israel, as well as, I would argue, the American South. People tend to have a strong sense of pride in what they've worked for. And we today live in a democratic republic. I want you to imagine how much more difficult it must have been for a Jewish person to become wealthy in the ancient Roman Empire. Now, assuming that the rich young man was a Jew, which is likely, he or someone in his family had worked very hard to gain that wealth. And from his perspective, human effort and willpower had earned him this status, this wealth, and he was not about to throw it away to the poor who had not earned the money 
and who probably, in his cultural understanding, had instead earned a curse from God. They don't deserve this. Jesus, why would I do this? Why would you ask this of me? We see it even in the way he words his question, right? It demonstrates this attitude to Jesus. He says, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? In other words, what work can I do to gain this wealth? You see that? But Jesus teaches very clearly in Matthew 19 that that attitude is what keeps us from understanding the economics of God's kingdom. Even the disciples struggled with this story. And they asked Jesus, well, if he can't be saved, how can any of us be saved? And Jesus says, you're missing the point. It's impossible for you. It's only possible with God. And then Jesus responds by telling them a very powerful story, a parable. He says, I want you to imagine a landowner with a vineyard. And this, this, this landowner needs workers to go into the vineyard. And so he goes to the marketplace early in the morning around 6 a.m. And he hires some men. And those men agree to a fair day's wage. And they head out into the field to pick grapes. The landowner then goes back into town a few more times during the day. And he hires more workers under the same arrangement. But as the day progresses, he doesn't lessen the pay. Everybody agrees to the same wage. Even the workers that he hires an hour before sunset are paid the full day's wage. Now, as we might expect, Jesus gets to the end of the story and the workers that he hired at 6 a.m. are upset when it's time to get paid. Why? It's because they feel entitled to more or they feel that the latecomers are entitled to less, even though everyone agrees to the wage that they're paid. They think to themselves, we've worked a full 12 hour shift and these last guys, they've only worked for 60 minutes. This is not fair, they say. And the landowner replies, do I not have a right to be generous to those who came late if I choose? Is this not my vineyard? And have I been unfair to you when this is the wage that you agreed to and no one forced you to work? And everybody in the room, if you're being honest, we think, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I get it. That's true, but we don't like this at all. If we're honest, we want to be paid in direct proportion to the work that we do. And we want everyone else to be paid in the same way. And if our boss is going to be extra generous to some, he better be extra generous to me. That's just not how things work around here. And Jesus is teaching that this attitude makes it very difficult for us to understand the grace of God. Because what is grace except undeserved something, right? 
So what do we do with Matthew 5? I want you first to remember the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon is about living in God's kingdom as a disciple of Jesus. It's about living a life that is produced by repentance and faith. It's about seeing the fruit or the evidence of that type of life. A a life that is shaped by grace. Not because you have to live this way to get God's grace, but because you want to live this way in response to the grace that you've been shown. That's why I say it happens by repentance and faith. It happens by seeing your own lack your own emptiness, and then responding from it. Again, Jesus is pointing all of us to the heart. He's using the law to expose our hearts and lead us to repentance and faith. So the basic principle, I think, is this. Followers of Jesus are being called to a gracious economy when it comes to our personal interactions with others. If I can be so bold, we're being called to live in this world as if we have no rights. We're being called to live as disciples of Jesus in the world but not of the world. And part of that means we're being called to live as if we have No rights. No right to comfort. No right to property. No right to our wealth. No right to honor. Now, the civil authorities that God has placed in this world may seek to preserve those rights on your behalf. I'm not saying that. This is different. Okay? Ultimately, justice will be served by God either here or at the judgment. But we, okay, who profess the name of Jesus Christ, we who call ourselves Christians, we who follow after a gracious Savior, are being called to voluntarily give up those rights. To voluntarily self-sacrifice. To voluntarily surrender our rights in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and even for the lost. And of course that's what Jesus calls us to do because that's exactly what He did. Jesus laid down His right to crush His enemies with the snap of a finger. A legion of angels stood ready to annihilate the the people who spit on our King. All He had to do was say the word. And yet He stood there. And they spit on him and they stripped and flogged him and they pressed thorns into his head and they mocked him 
And then they nailed him to a cross. And he has the right to destroy me with a single word. But instead, he laid that right down to receive me as a friend. And that's it. That's what he's asking of us is to live as if that's true. To live as if that's what has been done for us, that others might see that way of life in us. They might see the grace of God and they might ask, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you respond in that? I don't deserve that. Why would you walk the extra mile? Why would you turn the other cheek? Why would you give? I've done nothing to deserve it. I know. Me either. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for um, showing us mercy. Lord Jesus, we thank You for coming, giving up Your rights. You did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but You emptied Yourself even to the cross. So Lord Jesus, I pray that by Your Spirit You would call us to be gracious in our personal interactions. I pray that You would help us, empower us to live boldly in a world that doesn't understand self-sacrifice apart from Your Spirit. And I pray that You would use us as we surrender our our rights, that You would use us to expose others to Your grace. Pray that You would do that in us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.